We're so glad that you've tuned in to the Rolling Hills Community Church Sermon Podcast. My name is Kendall Kearns and I'm the student worship leader. We're now in the fifth week of our current series, Masterclass. The fifth chapter of the Gospel of Mark shows Jesus restoring lives in amazing ways. Jesus displayed his power to cast out demons, heal the sick, and even revive the dead. Let's dive into scripture to experience these awesome moments, which reveal the power and glory of Jesus. And now here's this week's sermon. There's a trend that I have noticed sweeping the nation, and it's what I like to call the let's overcomplicate things as much as we possibly can in life. Have you noticed it? I mean, it's a trend. It's, it's out there, and it's very contagious in our culture right now. We like to complicate things. We like to make really simple things much more complicated than they need to be. And if you've ever tried to buy tickets online recently, you'll know what I'm talking about. I mean, if you're going to buy tickets for an event, a concert, the symphony, whatever the case might be, this is a very complicated process this day and age. You go online to a ticket broker and you begin the process, which it is, in fact, a process, and you realize the first thing you have to do is create an account to be on that website, which then requires a 16-character password that has uppercase, lowercase, symbols, numbers, and it can't be one you've used in the last six months. And then you go to the next step, which is an app. So I have to get an app now and log in with said credentials that I just created. And now we're in the process of actually trying to find some tickets. And then when you find the tickets that you want, it pops up a bunch of pictures, and you have to click the three that have chimneys or the three that have stoplights in them. And you're thinking at this point in time, it's just survival of the fittest. I mean, do I really even want to go to this event anymore? But you keep going through, you enter your credit card information, and then you get to see how much it is that you actually get to pay for this event. And you realize that you're going to take a second mortgage out on your house to go to this concert and if that's not enough, they have the audacity to charge you a $21.99 service fee. I'm sorry, what services did you provide? Because if I made it this far, you should give me a $21.99 discount. There's not someone manually writing these tickets out over there for that service. So you guys get this, don't you? We have situations in life that are just more complicated than they need to be. These moments pop up all of the time. I had another one just a couple of weeks ago. I took my car in for some routine maintenance, getting a tires rotated. And so I parked and I walked inside and there was a guy with an iPad there and a little kiosk that said, check in. And so I went and checked in, told him what I was there for. And he says, great, you're on the list. You're sixth on the list. Um, you're going to get a text. You can follow along with your progress. And so I'm there refreshing every two minutes to see how far I'm heading in line. And I'm now in fifth place and I'm now in fourth place. About 30 minutes past, they call me up and they say, well, what are you in for? And I thought, well, I told the guy at the check-in kiosk that I was here to get my tires rotated. Great, let's go have a look. So they go outside, look at my tires, walk back inside. Did I keep, keep in mind, this is a place that only sells tires. Okay, so this is all they do. And I walk back in and they go on the computer for a few minutes and come back and say, well, we are going to be able to get your tires rotated today. Great. Um, <laughs> but you're currently ninth in line. I'm sorry, where's these three extra people? Because I was sixth outside, and now I'm ninth in here. And it was confusing. It was complicated to me. And another hour passes, and finally I get the services rendered that I'm there for. And I thought to myself, there is undoubtedly a system to this. I just don't understand the system. And the system seems really complicated to me. So here's what I'm suggesting for all of us this morning. How about we make a commitment right here and right now to embrace a more simple way of living? Can I get an amen? Okay. Are you guys with me on this? Let's go for a little bit more simple truth. Let's stop overcomplicating things. Now, all joking aside, I, I think 
I honestly think that one of the primary reasons that I'm really geeking out about this sermon series and what I'm really excited about in this series called Masterclass is we're taking a book of the Bible, the Gospel of Mark, and we're looking at simple truths week after week, verse after verse, chapter after chapter, because what are these simple truths that we're exploring? We're looking at how Jesus wants us to live. And we're seeing how Jesus had words for people who were overcomplicating things. There were religious leaders. There were Pharisees of the day. And they were taking simple concepts, who Jesus was, why he had come, and they were overcomplicating it and looking for hope in a myriad of other places. And Jesus said, no, in fact, I want you to find your hope in me and me alone. For those of you with us for the very first time, we're calling this series Masterclass. And we're looking at this book, this gospel for the 16 weeks. We're in, in week number five right now, chapter five this morning. And so in, in, in lieu of kind of, what, kind of what's happening here, because maybe you haven't had a chance to be here for the previous four weeks, what's happening in the gospel of Mark is that this letter, this, this, this gospel is being written to some Christians who are dealing with some adversities. They're dealing with some challenges, some struggles. And Mark, John Mark is trying to help them to understand what it means to not give up and to still have faith in the midst of the challenges that they might be encountering. And so seeing that I've kind of set this up as let's go after these simple truths, I don't want you to mistakenly think that simple truths are easy truths. That's not easy at all, but in fact, it is incredibly simple. And so what is one of these simple truths that I want us to walk away with this morning? The big idea. If you don't hear anything else that I hear this, that I say this morning, remember this, Jesus has authority over everything. Jesus has authority over everything in your life everything in this world. And you're going to see that here in just a second in Mark chapter 5, where Jesus has authority over evil spirits, where Jesus has authority over physical ailments, where Jesus has authority over sin, and where ultimately Jesus has authority over death. And because of his authority, we can trust him. We can trust him with everything that's going on in our lives. And so just know that I'm so thankful that you are here. And we're going to be reading this morning in Mark chapter 5. If you want to turn there, if you want to follow along with me on your app, you're going to see these words up here on the screen as well. But right before Mark chapter 5 is this snapshot where Jesus calms the sea. And the sea is very rough. It's very tumultuous. And the disciples are afraid because they're on a boat and the sea is really choppy. And Jesus says, you don't need to fear because I'm going to calm the storm. And so he tells the storm, quiet, be still, to remind us once again that he has authority over everything in this world. And that's the backdrop for where we pick up in chapter 5 as they're approaching the shore. And so they went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. And this man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. And he shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you impure spirit. And then Jesus asked him, what is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. So this sounds like a guy that you all would want to hang out with, right? I mean, uh, Jesus arrives on the land and this man with an impure spirit, a demon possessions, comes to Jesus. And we're taught that he lived in the tombs. He had uh, been bound by chains, but kept breaking those chains. He would cry out in the night, wild, kind of animal-like behavior. He was very strong. He was self-destructive, but he comes towards Jesus. 
Jesus does not go to him. He comes to Jesus and he says to Jesus in, 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 in Jesus' name, Jesus, most, son of the most high God, in essence, what do you want with me? Did you notice how the demon used the name of Jesus? Because in the first century, there was an ancient superstition that if you knew someone's name and you said someone's name, then you had power over them and you were seeking to control them. So when these demons are referencing Jesus by his name, in essence, what they're saying is I am more powerful than you. I have more power than you do. And in modern language, these are the demons flexing their muscles. They're saying, we are stronger than you, Jesus. But Jesus commanded the demons in verse 8 to come out of this man. And then he says, what is your name? To which the demon replied, Legion. And Legion is not a name, but Legion is a number. And so Legion was a a word that would be used to describe thousands of soldiers. Upwards sometimes of 6,000 soldiers would be considered a legion of soldiers. So this man is not possessed by just one demon. He has multiple demon possessions. And Jesus does not say, please identify yourself demon by demon by demon. Why? Because Jesus did not have to play the game of this demon. The demon says, I have authority over you. And Jesus says, no, you don't. So much so, watch what I'm getting ready to do. And if you keep reading on, and in the essence of time, I'm not going to read all of the passage that, that goes in the next few verses. But so much so, Jesus cast out the demons from this man. And there's a herd of pigs that are there, unfortunately timed pigs, who are there. You know, you know, feel really bad for the farmer whose pigs just happened to be there on the hillside. 2,000 of them. And Jesus cast out all of these demons into the pigs and they run down the hill into the lake and they are drowned. But immediately it says in the text that this man's life has changed. And he's now sitting there in his right mind so much so he now wants to join Jesus and the disciples in the mission that they are getting ready to embark upon. Can you imagine the disciples? I mean, I'm thinking if I'm one of these disciples, I'm thinking, seriously, Jesus, this guy's going to need a little bit more rehabilitation. I mean, you saw what just happened there. Um, I don't think he's ready. I think he needs like a 101 course before we invite him into the boat. Um, But the reality is they bring, his life has changed. And so because his life is changed, he wants to be with Jesus. I mean, look back at the text, verses 18 through 20. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. But Jesus did not let him, but said, go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people were amazed. He wanted to go with Jesus because he had seen the power of Jesus to conquer the evil and the sin in his life, which serves as a a great reminder. That that big idea for today, you see it here on the screen. Jesus has dominion over everything. Jesus has authority over everything. Everything is under the control of Jesus, meaning that the demons shuddered at the name of Jesus, meaning that the evil that we see in this world right now that's so debilitating, that's so hard for us to even fathom many times what's going on, We don't even know how to put to words sometimes what we see or what we experience. Jesus has authority over it all. Jesus has authority over sin. He has the dominion over sin in your life. And he died so that you could be set free. He took the cross for your freedom and for my freedom. And just like this man, Jesus wants to change us. He wants to change you. He wants to use you. He didn't invite this man to come and be with him right in that moment because he said, there's work for you to do. Go tell others about what has happened. And when he went and told others in his hometown, it says that the people were 
amazed by that. What does that mean for you and me? It means what you see up here on your screen is that God wants to use your story then as a crucial part of another person's faith story. God wants to use your story as a crucial part of another person's faith story. It's why Jesus said, go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. You go tell others about what just happened to you because many people aren't gonna believe it. But you go tell them that you were bound by evil and bound by these impure spirits and now you're free because of the authority of Jesus. So go tell your story. I can't help but think that anytime there's a group of people assembled, that there's probably some stories in this room that have not been told that God's wanting you to tell. Some of you have experienced uh, freedom in your life. Maybe you have a background uh, where there was some things you've overcome. Maybe there's some addictions that you have worked really, really hard to overcome. And it's only through the power of Jesus that you have overcome that. And you're sitting on that. And you're not sharing that with other people Unbeknownst to you, there are probably some other people in the room, some other people in your community, some other people in your workplaces that could experience life and freedom because of seeing what happened in your life through the power of the Holy Spirit. Some of your marriages may have been on the brink of divorce and God rescued it. And you've not shared that with anyone. Unbeknownst to you, there are people in your circle that need to experience what you have experienced. There's probably some miraculous healings that have only come by the power of God in this place. And instead of sharing that, knowing that other people can experience those same things, we've kind of taken a back seat. But just like this man, God wants to use your story. He wants to use your story to point to how good he is. But you and I have to share it. And so then the story continues in verse 21. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, uh, they didn't add in there that he's crossing by all of the demon-possessed pigs that are floating. (laughs) I mean, that detail, Mark left that one out. So, I mean, there's 2,000 pigs just floating around in the lake. But Jesus had crossed over, you know, by boat to the other side of the lake. A large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. And then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came. And when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. And he pleaded earnestly with him, My daughter is dying. Please come. And put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him, and a large crowd followed and pressed around him. So Jesus is met on land by the synagogue leader, whose name is Jairus. And Jairus says to Jesus, my daughter is dying, so can you please come and place your hands on her so that she will live? Now, Jairus was a local synagogue leader, meaning that he would have been a man who served in the synagogue, the the kind of center of town where people would come and worship. And and what you need to realize about a synagogue leader is that a synagogue leader would have been extremely well-versed in Old Testament law. These would have been experts in the law. These would have been kind of the Pharisee type. And if you're new here today, or maybe that word Pharisee doesn't mean anything to you. What a Pharisee was, a religious leader was, is they were someone who did not understand and did not believe that Jesus is who he said he was. They were looking for someone different than Jesus. And so instead of being grace-filled and merciful like Jesus was, they were all about the law and they were all about the rules and they were trying to find God through all of these rules. And so there's this group and many of them were actually trying to kill Jesus. They were trying to stomp out and squelch the message of Jesus. And so Jairus, a synagogue leader, he would have been much more like that crowd than he would have been the crowd who was showing up to receive healing. He would have been much more um, rules-based. And what do we, and, and, and in this moment, what, what, do we, what do we realize? That when you kind of have that background, but something happens in your life that 
you've not been able to figure out on your own power, my how the tone sometimes changes. And you have this religious leader who was once very militant, but now he comes to Jesus in desperation and says, Jesus, please heal my daughter. Isn't it amazing how open we are to Jesus in really desperate times? It's why if you have someone in your life right now that's going through a really desperate season, now is the time to talk to them about Jesus. If you're going through a desperate time, in fact, one of the primary faith catalysts for many of us has been a crisis. We've gone through a crisis and we realize that there has to be some hope more so than what we are experiencing. Now, do I wish a crisis on you? Absolutely not. Should you wish a crisis on someone in this room? Absolutely not. But I will say this, let's not waste the crisis. If you have a crisis that's going on in your life right now, how about saying, God, what is it that you want to show me through this? And maybe I've been trying to figure out life far too much on my own. Show me what it is that you want to do. What do you want to do in the midst of this? How do you want to work in this situation just like you were here with Jairus? This came kind of full circle for me back in July of 2018. Um, It was a random uh, Saturday, and uh, I started having some pretty severe abdominal pain. And uh, I didn't know what it was. I thought it was just something that I ate. And so I'm not a hypochondriac at all, so I never Google anything medical, which you shouldn't either. Um, And so... I, did, I just thought, I'll probably, you know, pop some Rolaids and it'll be fine. And, um, and so I actually came to church that day. That's why we were still meeting over the elementary school. And as the morning went on, I started feeling worse and worse and worse. But I actually stood up and preached a couple of sermons. You all never knew uh, what was happening. Um, and so I go home that afternoon, and it moves from pain to what I would consider agony. And so I'm laying, on the, laying there at a house, and I'm thinking, I'm okay. I'm going to be fine. And my wife the smart one, uh, says in our relationship here, says, I think you need to go to the urgent care or something. Like, clearly something's wrong with you. And so I go to the urgent care and they say, ah, it looks like appendicitis. I mean, this is like, we see this, uh, it looks like appendicitis. You need to go to the ER. Sure enough, I go to the ER, classic case of appendicitis. We've got to get this appendix out of there. So I show up on a Sunday night, which is the worst time to ever go to the ER. So I have to spend the night. And the next morning, um, I I get rolled in for surgery uh, to have my appendix removed. And so the surgeon comes in, who I've met for the very first time, and uh, she's talking to me and she says, you know, Jason, this is a very routine operation, nothing to be, you know, concerned about. We've got to get this appendix out, but I think you're going to be fine. And so then she looks at me and says, um, would it be okay if I prayed for you? I said, bring it on. Uh, I said, I'm a pastor. And uh, so, yes, please, I would welcome the prayer. And she said, well, seeing that you're a pastor, I think that you should, after I pray, you should lead us all in prayer. And so we're back in this operating room and we're holding hands, nurses, doctors, anesthesiologists. And I'm thinking to myself, like, where is a worship pastor with a guitar? Because, I mean, we're having church back here. And we go in, and the surgery is fine, go home, no issues. A couple weeks pass, and I go back for my follow-up appointment. And I say to her, thank you for offering to, to pray for me. I was so moved by that gesture. And then I said, is that something that you do for all of your patients? And she said, yes. And I said, tell me more. You know, I'd love to know more about that. And she said, well, I'm a Christian. And uh, she said, I have um, so many opportunities to share my faith and to share hope with other people. And she said, I really feel called by God to be in the profession that I'm in. I know that I don't have any skill. I don't have any abilities to do anything that God did not give me. Um, And so she said, I just try to, you know, 
point people to Jesus in the midst of, of these situations. And then she said something that has stuck with me since that day in 2018. She said, and I do this because what I've come to realize is that there are no atheists on the operating table. And I said, did you want to come to our church and speak sometime? Uh, let me know what Sunday you're available, and I'd gladly give you a microphone. Um, and she said, because this is what I've come to realize. When you are getting ready to be put to sleep and your body cut open, it doesn't matter how major or how minor it might be. You want to know in that moment that everything is going to be okay. And I know that the only way that you can really know that everything is going to be okay is through Jesus. And I think about Jairus here. Jairus was desperate. His daughter was dying. Hold that thought. That word, desperation, because you have this one desperate man and Jesus heads out with Jairus to go heal his daughter. And en route to this interaction with Jairus' daughter, Jesus gets interrupted in, in Mark chapter 5, verse 24. So as they were going with them, a large crowd followed and pressed around him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all that she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. And when she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak. And because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. And immediately her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. So Jesus is walking with one desperate man whose daughter is dying. And another woman who is desperate, who has this bleeding issue for 12 years, pushes through the crowd to touch the tassel of Jesus' garment. And when she does, her bleeding immediately stops and she is healed. And what do we know about this scene? We know about this scene that because of her bleeding, she would have been ceremonially unclean. She would have been one of those people that would have had to shout unclean when she walked into a room. She would not have been welcomed in the synagogue. Side note, who's working the front door of the synagogue? Jairus. So here you have this guy, Jairus, who likely may have been one of the guys who would have told her, you're not welcome here. And he's trying to bring Jesus along quickly because his daughter is dying and Jesus stops to heal an unclean person. And she comes and touches the tassel of his garment. She was healed. But prior to that, we're told that she was financially broke. She was socially empty. She was mentally exhausted, of course, physically drained, ceremonially unclean because she had spent all that she had on doctors, but instead of getting better, she was getting worse. She had tried everything to solve this issue and no healing came until she came to Jesus. And when she touched the tassel of his garment, it says in verse 34, he said to her daughter, your faith has healed you. So go in peace. And be freed from your suffering. Your faith has healed you. What do both of these instances remind us of? Both Jairus and this lady. Both of these instances remind us of what's kind of an unfortunate reality for many of us. Is that all too often though Jesus is our last resort. Instead of being the one that we go to first, all too often Jesus is our last resort. Because think about Jairus, the rules, the laws, they weren't enough. They didn't solve the problems that he was encountering with his dying daughter. The doctors, the home remedies, the mystics, they were not enough for this woman. It was only Jesus who did the healing, and Jesus was the one they came to last when nothing else had worked. But what does Jesus want us to do? He wants us to come to him first and say, Jesus, I know that you care. 
I know that you can heal. I know that you can provide like nothing else can provide. So it's important for us. And you see this here on your screen. And I, and I hope that you'll actively work on kind of just internalizing this throughout the course of this week. When you pursue the ways of the world first, you're never left in a better condition. When you pursue the ways of the world first, you're never left in a better condition. What do I mean by that? Are the ways of the world bad? Absolutely not. Is medicine bad? Finances, resources, activity, all, all those things. Are those things bad? Absolutely not. But when's the last time any of those things changed your heart for the better? When you pursue the things of the world first, before Jesus, they don't leave us in a better condition. If we're not careful, we tend to think that everything from the world's perspective is really what we need. And if we have any leftover time or any leftover mental energy, then we'll devote that to seeking to trust Jesus. But if we put anything above Jesus, anything above Jesus, it's going to want us leaving more. And it's never going to leave us in a better condition. All of us struggle with this if we're not careful. And all of us will deal with this. I know there's lots of parents in the room. And as parents and to you who are parents, there is a real struggle right now in our society and in our culture to prioritize what really matters in our family units. It's, it is a real struggle. The more and more families I talk to, the more moms and dads I speak with, the more that I realize just how much of an issue this is prioritizing what really matters. And so I implore you, if you're a parent, please do not let your kids growing up thinking that baseball is more important than Jesus. <laughs> I beg you, please do not let your kids grow up thinking that dance is more important than Jesus. Please don't let your kids grow up thinking that grades are more important than Jesus. Now, am I a fan of all of those? Absolutely. I say the more the merrier. We do those things. I mean, those are things that we as a family are actively engaged in. So I'm not trying to make you feel bad. I'm not saying leave church today and take your kids out of everything. But I promise you, apart from Jesus, those things can easily get out of control. And you can begin prioritizing those. And what might happen is that your kid might be good enough to make it to the major leagues. They probably won't be, but if they are, <laughs> if you're one of the lucky ones, that has a kid good enough to make it to the major leagues, but they make it to the major leagues without Jesus, they will be broken. And the major leagues will not solve their woes. If you have a child that is smart enough to get a full ride to Harvard and they go to the Ivy League where very few people have ever gone before and yet they make it there without Jesus, they will be broken. And it's our job to help them see a bigger perspective, a godly perspective. And what does that godly perspective look like? That godly perspective is God first, everything else. <laughs> Jesus first, family, church, then everything else. And all it takes is a little bending of the priorities here to lead to a little bending of the priorities over here. And things can get to the place that we never intended them to happen. And I could produce for you 10 families without question who would gladly come up on this stage right now and say, I wish we would not have made Jesus a last resort in our family because we're experiencing the side effects of that now. The things of this world didn't leave us in a better condition. Okay, I digress. Let's not forget Jairus' daughter is dying. So back. Um, <laughs> Back to the text, verse 35. So while Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? So overhearing what they said, 
Jesus told him, don't be afraid, just believe. And he did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. And when they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. And he went in and said to them, why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. And after he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him. And he went in where the child was. And he took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum which means, little girl, I say to you, get up. And immediately the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. And at this, they were completely astonished. And he gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. So what did the crowd see? The crowd saw a challenge. And that challenge was a pretty pronounced challenge, death. (laughs) The story is over because this little girl has died. And so the Crowd says, let's don't bother Jesus anymore. Let's don't make him waste any steps walking over here to Jairus' house because this little girl is already dead. But Jesus overhears that and says to them, don't be afraid, just believe. And may you and I hear those words today. In fact, may we seek to live by this principle, faith over fear, belief over fear. Faith in Jesus over the fear in our life, because all that's coming at us this day, these, these days, it's scary, isn't it? It's, it's war, it's financial struggles, it's, it's, it's parenting issues, it's, it's things that we're dealing with uh, in, in our lives, in our workplaces. Maybe you're overwhelmed by where you are in life right now, or maybe you're really overwhelmed by where you are not in life. You thought life would look a lot more differently than it does in your current state, and all of that has produced so much anxiety or so much stress. Wherever you might be, hear these words of Jesus when he says, do not fear, because I am in the midst of all of those situations. And so up on arriving at home, at the home of Jairus, there's a loud commotion. And it was actually customary in the first century to actually hire professional mourners. I mean, they would actually, if something, someone's getting ready to die, they would actually hire professional mourners. I mean, could you imagine that being your job? Is that you would show up just theatrically to, you know, to weep and wail because someone uh, is, is, is dying. And so Jairus would have been a person of, of some financial means. So he would have had a lot of mourners that they would have hired to be there. And, and Jesus shows up at this scene and says, I don't know why you all are crying because this little girl is not dead. She's asleep. And can you imagine the people there like, there was no pulse. So pretty sure she's dead. And how did the people respond to that? Well, verse 40, they laughed at him. But after that, they laughed at him. And after he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and he went in there to where the child was. Now see, the crowds had already thought that Jesus was out of his mind. Go back to Mark chapter 2. The crowd already thought that Jesus was someone who was out of his mind. And so saying that a dead girl is just asleep did not help that cause. They continue to think that he is out of his mind. So what does Jesus do? He casts them all out of the house. It's as if he is saying, you can take that negativity somewhere else because I'm getting ready to do something spectacular here. It can only be described by God. And so Jesus takes in the parents. He takes in Jairus. He takes in his disciples into the room. He grabs her by the hand, and he says, Talitha kum, which translates to get up. And she does. And it says in verse 42, immediately the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. And at this, they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. Can someone bring this girl some goldfish crackers? Because being dead sure does make you hungry. She needs something to eat. You have this 12-year-old girl 
who has her entire future ahead of her. She's sick, which led to death, but now Jesus shows up and she's alive. You had a woman with this bleeding issue for 12 years and she was healed because she touched the garment of Jesus Christ. A 12-year-old girl, a, a, a woman dealing with this bleeding issue for 12 years. Had there been hospitals in the first century, these two patients could have been in the hospital at the same time. One of them being diagnosed with a bleeding issue and Jairus and his wife welcoming a newborn. But for those 12 years, they dealt with desperation. They dealt with pain. Both of these situations show us what? They show us people who are desperate. But this is what I want us to walk away with today. That no matter how desperate your situation may be, Jesus is greater. No matter how desperate your situation may be this morning, Jesus is is greater. I'm not going to stand up here on this stage and pretend that I know what you're going through because I don't. I'm not going to pretend that I know the, the intricacies, the highs and the lows of things that you are experiencing. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to stand up here and say, what you're going through is really, really easy. You just need to do this and you'll be fine. Or, you know, you need to move on through that grief, whatever the case might be. I don't know the struggles that are present in this room, but I do know this. God's holding it all together. I don't know what you're going through. I don't know what place you're in in life right now that's just not where you thought. Or I don't know those things that are stressing you out. I don't know those anxieties that are weighing so heavily on your shoulder. But I do know this incredibly simple truth that Jesus has authority over it. And Jesus is not taken by surprise by any of it. He loves you and he wants you to come to him in the midst of whatever it is that you are going through. And so I started today by saying that we tend to overcomplicate things. And it's true. But the more I've thought about it, I think why we tend to overcomplicate things is because it makes us feel in control. We like to overcomplicate things because it allows me to be in the driver's seat. And we create lots of rules and lots of systems and lots of structures because it gives me a perceived sense of value. Or it gives me a perceived sense of importance. But when you realize that Jesus has authority over everything, you then realize, I can trust him with everything. And to a man who was under the weight of sin and evil, these impure spirits, healing only came when he moved from his power and approached Jesus. To a woman who had tried everything else that money could buy, healing only came when she turned to Jesus. And to a family that had in front of them what seemed like a really insurmountable mountain that they could not climb, death. It was only when Jesus was invited into the situation that they found hope. So if you've been trying to hold life together in your own power, it is likely that you do feel overwhelmed this morning. If you've been trying to make sense of everything in your own human power or intuition, it is likely that you're frustrated or that you're anxious. But hear this morning from the text that Jesus is here to carry you. Jesus is here to hold you. He's here to listen to you. He's here to heal you. He's here to save you. And so I'd like for you to bow your heads and close your eyes for a moment. And I want to give you an opportunity this morning to worship, but also just to turn to him and to trust him today. Maybe as, uh, as you've heard these words and as you've reflected upon who Jesus is, maybe you realize I don't have that relationship with, with Christ that I know that I so desperately need. And I hope and pray that today would be the day that you would take a step of courage and say, you know what, I want to make a note on that card 
uh, for someone to reach out to me. I want to take a next step of baptism. I want to trust you, Jesus, um, for all that's going on in my life. Or, or maybe there's a need that's just really pronounced, and it's, um, it's weighing so heavily on your heart and on your mind, and it's maybe even preventing you from being able to do the things that you know God's calling you to do. Maybe today would be the day when you say, God, I need you, and I want to experience your power. And so this morning, if we can pray for you, if you can make some notes on a card, if you can stand and worship, if you want to kneel and pray, whatever it might be, this is your time because Jesus is here, and he loves you, and he wants to heal you, and he wants to provide for you. And so this morning, let's don't make him a last resort. But let's make him the one that we run to first. So God, I pray that you would meet each and every one of us exactly where we are. I pray that as we respond, I pray that as we worship, I pray that as we reflect upon your goodness and reflect upon your word, that you would meet us here in this place. And I pray that through the power of the Holy Spirit, there would be healing, there would be transformation, there would be salvation, there would be next steps that are taken, there would be anxieties that we cast up on you, that there would be worries that we give to you, that there would be frustration, that there would be feelings of overwhelmness. God, all the things that are so easily on our hearts and minds right now, God, may we lift those up to you. And realize that once and for all, God, you want to take them. So meet us here, God. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for your presence in this place. And thank you for doing for us what we can never do for ourselves. And we stand in amazement of that. And we seek to proclaim that today. And it's in your name that we pray. And it's in your name that we worship. And it's in your name that we boldly ask you to do what only you can do. The precious name of Jesus. Amen and amen. You've been listening to the Rolling Hills Sermon Podcast, part of the Rolling Hills Podcast Network. If you've enjoyed this podcast episode, we hope you will tell a friend about us and subscribe so you can be notified each time we release a new sermon. Be sure to explore our other great podcasts like the Making History Parenting Podcast, Men's Leadership Network, and the RH Women's As You Go Podcast. If you're interested in learning more about Rolling Hills, you can download our app, follow us on social media, or visit our website at rollinghills.church. See you next time and God bless.